Welcome to Strangers from KCW and Radiotopia. I'm Leah Tapp. We're posting this on Father's Day, and our story is about Steve and Patrick, who'd been together for six years and married for three, when they decided to become dads. As a gay couple, they couldn't have a baby the old-fashioned way, so they did foster to adopt, which means that you foster a child in the hopes that it'll be freed for adoption. Unlike other foster arrangements, you're upfront about the fact that you hope the child will become yours. But you know there's a risk that won't happen. They went through the process of getting certified, stating that they wanted a child who was likely to be freed for adoption, and ideally a baby or a toddler. And they were told it would probably take months, if not years, before they got a kid. We finished all of our certification stuff on a Thursday morning, and we got the call from the agency that everything was done and processed, and we were licensed. And then we're settling in for the long wait, and six hours later, they called us (laughs) and told us they had a baby for us. But the catch was that we had to, like, decide in 10 minutes. Because it was the end of the workday. It was 4.30, and they leave the office at 5, so they needed a placement for this baby by that night. Steve was in class, and I knew that he wasn't going to be necessarily psyched about, like, I mean, right. he's very pragmatic. I the first phone call, but when we had the second phone call, I figured it might be important. Right. <laughs> so when, when they told me we had 10 minutes, I was, like, shaking. And so his phone was, like, buzzing in his pocket, and he didn't answer it. So then I, I called him back, and I was like, you, please answer the phone. I have to, we have 10 minutes to decide. And we kind of didn't know what we were going to do, because we were expecting to have another year to prepare and save and... This opportunity just fell in our lap, and we thought, like, if it really is so unusual to get a baby, can we turn it down? And Steve was more, you know, he's not as impulsive as I am. But I guess there's a part of me that has to admit that, like, I wasn't getting off that phone until I got a yes. The baby girl was four days old. They delivered her like a pizza. They, there was a caravan that pulled up, and the social worker came. So I said, can I take your coat? And she said, no, no, I, I won't be staying long. I was home by myself. Steve was in class. And there's this, like, baby with all of her worldly possessions, which were the diaper she was wearing and this little blue snowsuit that they had put her in because it was cold out. And they handed her to me with a bag of formula and said, feed her every four hours, and she left. And I... And there I was in this room with a baby and a bag of formula that I didn't even know how to put together. I mean, and I'm not the one who knows how to do things. That's Steve. So I was like, babe, the baby's here. Come home. And just like that, they were a family. And ponder this, all you parents, like myself, who needed weeks just to decide between the Bjorn and the Ergo for your baby registry. We had nothing. We had no anything. We had no clothes. We had no changing table, no crib, nothing. You know, with the foster care system, we didn't know if we were getting a baby, a six-month-old, a one-year-old, so we couldn't, we didn't know what to have. So our friend Ellen, the night that we found out we were getting her, put a a message up on a Facebook message board, and literally within 24 hours, we had the changing table and all of her clothes and this little Moses basket and the bassinet and the swing and the pack-and-play and the car seat with the stroller and diapers and what, I mean, it was like people just came out of the woodwork. The first night was absolutely terrifying, and she slept so peacefully 
that we just did, had no faith that she was breathing. So I just stayed awake the whole night, like literally staring at her. So our friend Ellen, who helped us get all of this stuff, we knew she was coming like first thing the next morning. I'm like, Ellen will be here in nine hours. Ellen will be here in eight hours. Ellen will be here in seven hours and 30 minutes. <laughs> and she will teach us how to raise this child. It didn't take very long for Patrick and Steve to get the hang of it. The changing table is her favorite place in the entire apartment. You put her on the changing table and she stretches and she smiles. My favorite is this. I have this little song where I take her legs and I sing, this is how you kick your legs, kick your legs, kick your legs. And I like kick her legs and she, it makes her laugh like crazy. Stephen Patrick had been told they'd get a baby who was either freed for adoption or on her way to being freed meaning a baby whose birth parents weren't actively trying to get her back. Then they found out that this was not the case with their baby. To protect her privacy, I won't use her real name, but we'll call her Violet. They found out that the birth parents did, in fact, want her back. They were not meeting the criteria to get her back, and they already had two other kids in the foster system. But their aim was to reclaim her, which meant that Steve and Patrick could lose her. I think in the first couple of days, I tried to be in the mindset of, like, it's okay to love her. Just know, like, try not to get overly attached, you know. But, like, yeah, there's nothing I could have done about it. You know, that the first time you make eye contact with this baby that you are responsible for, it's over. I mean, you're, you're just completely in love with it. Steve was a little better at keeping things separate in the beginning. I think I keep it more in my mind that, that it can turn at any time, you know that it, it's not permanent quite yet. Steve had good reason for trying to keep his distance because staggering complications began to crop up. Not only did the birth parents want Violet back, they also had a say in who the foster parents were. And Steve and Patrick were told that the birth parents had a concern which the agency had to consider. We also found out that they were, the birth parents were trying to have the baby removed from our home from the minute she was here. We were told that the birth father was uncomfortable with two men changing the baby's diapers. But the system safeguards against discrimination of gay foster parents. And in the end, it was decided that the birth parent's objection was not reason enough to take Violet away from Patrick and Steve. She stayed with them for the time being. But they found out that it would be at least 12 months before there could be any talk of terminating the parents' rights. Meaning the parents had at least a year to get their act together and regain custody of Violet. I can't go into the reasons why the birth parents lost their kids. It's confidential. I can only say that of their three kids, their oldest child had been freed for adoption, meaning their parental rights to that child had been terminated. Meanwhile, Violet and an 18-month-old sister, who'd also been in foster care since birth, remained in limbo. Patrick and Steve could do nothing but wait and care for baby Violet, who turned their lives upside down. Overnight, our life went from, like, theater and happy hour to, like, feeding and learning how to make a bottle, trying to figure out what all those sounds mean and changing diapers and being up all night. Patrick loved the change, and he took a couple months off from work to be home with the baby. I was so excited to take her for her first walk through the village. I'm, like, a big fan of the history of the village or whatever. So, of course, she's in the Baby Bjorn, like, sound asleep, and I'm still pointing out all my favorite buildings and telling her the history, and I just loved it. And as soon as we got her, I was like, I just want to be home. I just want to be with my baby. Being a stay-at-home mom is the best. 
Patrick is so the mom in this family, and Steve is the classic dad, and I'm reluctant to say it for fear that it'll perpetuate a terrible gay stereotype and also a gender stereotype where moms are like this and dads are like that, which really isn't the case anymore, and no, we can't generalize. But nevertheless, if I had a penny for every dad who felt like Steve at first, I'd be a rich woman. Sorry to say, but it's true. Yes, he wanted a baby, but perhaps not quite so soon, which in his case was overnight. Imagine that, all you dads who felt like nine months wasn't quite enough to prepare yourselves mentally. And he felt a little pressured. You know, it was the middle of his semester. But still, he was the one who rushed to put the crib together. He was full of practical concerns. He was also the one who tackled the first batch of baby formula. And then Patrick's paternity leave ended, and Steve's semester was over. So he became the full-time caregiver. There have definitely been days that I have come home from work and he like Steve's hair will just be on end and his glasses askew and he's like, she won't stop fussing. I think what you don't realize before you have a baby is the time. You think, oh, I'll feed her and you know that'll be a quick process. No, that can be a long process. <laughs> and then once you're done with it, then you have to turn around and do it right again. But what I saw was a very competent and caring Steve who paid minute attention to the baby's comfort while Patrick did most of the talking. Oh, little yawny pants. It's a good yawn. Yeah. She's warm. Yeah. Cutie. Oh. I think we need a change here. And that's what happens. When you start caring for the child, That's what bonds you. Loving a kid is not an abstract thing, and it's not necessarily automatic. Sure, some love chemicals are released in a mother who gives birth that often result in instantaneous love. But for all parents, and perhaps especially for dads, the love deepens as you care for them. The care is in the caring. Steve's not a super, like, I love you, I love you, I love you kind of guy the way that I am. But the other day, I heard him going... I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And like, like going like closer to her face and then pulling back and then closer to her face and pulling back. Meanwhile, Patrick had a hard time with the new arrangement. I cry. Like, I literally, like, the, my first week back at work, I came home and I have this wacky schedule where, like, I'm a concierge. So I work the evening shift on Friday and then the morning shift on Saturday. So the first time I got back to that schedule, I just sat on the couch and cried because I was, I'm like, I'm not going to see her for, it felt like an eternity. This is the plight of the working mother, you know? I just miss her all day. I miss her all day. So Steve will text me pictures. <laughs> like, you have to text me at least three pictures throughout the day so I know what you guys are doing. Patrick and Steve were taking Violet to the agency for visitation with her birth parents twice a week. And when they ran into the birth parents, the relationship was cordial, even friendly. They went out of their way to try to make it so, even though they were on opposite sides of a devastating divide which created a bizarre moral dilemma for Patrick and Steve. It's just that constant struggle of, like, how horrible it would be for them to lose their child, but also how... I mean, I can't not go to that place where I see that day that we have to give her back to them, you know, and we hand her off, and she's crying for us, and we have to leave. Oh, my God, I'm going to totally lose it. Just talking, just that image in my head of, like, her reaching for us, and we have to, like, go and walk down the stairs and then never see her again. On a human level, 
Nobody wants anybody to lose their kids. I mean, that's the worst thing you can imagine. And you want them to win. You want them to get their stuff together and get their kids back. You want to feel like they are having every opportunity to get the baby back, but you don't want them to get the baby back. So you're sitting across the table from these people at a meeting hearing all these things that they're not doing to get their kids back. And I think about how sad that is. But then at the same time, I think, thank God. Thank God. You know, don't. (laughs) Keep not doing what you're not doing. But I also know that it doesn't mean that they won't ever see her again. You know, we know, Steve and I know as a couple, that if they lose custody of her and we adopt her, it does not mean that that has to be the last time that they will see her. We can work it out and we will work it out as much as they want to. And the reverse is not true. I mean, if they get her back, we'll never see her again. But yeah, you find yourself rooting against these people, rooting for their failure, you know? And that's not the kind of people that we are. I think some of the solace that I take in it is that I think that we can give her a better life. I know we can give her a better life. Steve, ever the pragmatist, saw it differently. We don't have the right to say that she stays with us just because we can provide a better life for her. She is someone else's child, and if the family is okay enough to take care of her, then that's where she would have to be. Steve definitely struggles with the... Not that I don't, but Steve struggles with the moral dilemma of wanting what's best for everybody, including the birth parents, I think more than I do. When I went to the first court date for this whole situation, Steve wasn't able to make it, and his like first question to me when I got home was, did the birth parents have a lawyer? You know, He just wants to make sure that they're getting a fair shake. But I think, though, that like the longer we have her, the more attached she becomes to us and knows us as her parents, you know, that these people are strangers to her. Like, I think there is something to be said for, we are her parents, you know? I mean, we are her parents. I think that's true. And I think that we are in a position now where the parents are not meeting the baseline criteria. But another hurdle came up because Violet had an 18-month-old sister who'd also been in foster care since birth. And the system is set up to try to keep siblings in the same place, even if they've never lived together. So suddenly Patrick and Steve were told that Violet would be taken away from them and placed with her sister's foster mom. We were heading into the office one day and we thought that that was was it. We were going to drop her off and we were going to be leaving empty-handed. That's where the emotion comes out is... I can rationally say all of these things about the parents should be given the chance. So if we look at it and we judge the facts in front of us, this is where we are. But then we do have those days where we think we're going to drop her off and we're going to leave without her. And it's a mess. It's absolutely, we're both a mess on those days. But in the end, the other foster mom said no to taking Violet. So she remained with Patrick and Steve they'd weathered another storm. But then came a meeting with the birth parents, where the father revealed some news that made them nervous. So then last week we had what's called a parent-to-parent meeting. It's a meeting where the birth parents are supposed to tell the foster parents what their kid's like and, you know, how to care for their children, but their baby has never lived with them. So in our case, it's the reverse. 
you know, it was awkward just in that sense. But in the meeting, he said, the birth dad, uh, that they had been approved for housing. And he didn't really expand on it, but like the bottom just dropped out. Housing was one of the issues the parents would have to solve in order to get Violet back. But there were other issues as well. Being poor, thank God, is not reason alone to have your kids taken away. And parents who lose their housing can go into the shelter system and keep their kids. That's no picnic, I'm sure, and much more should be done to support poor families in this country, if you ask me. But Violet's parents had some other rather troubling problems in their past. Still, the system is set up to give custody back to the birth parents when at all possible. So the news that they'd found housing was an emotional roller coaster for Patrick and Steve. But they tried to put on a brave face. Immediately, both me and Steve were like, oh, congratulations, good for you, that's great. And then the meeting ended, and I was on the sidewalk losing it, like bawling. I just couldn't, I mean, to me, it just seemed like it was over. They later learned that this was not true, that the parents had not, in fact, found housing, at least so far as they knew. Even the social worker said, unless it's something I don't know about, which implied that that was possible. So we still don't completely know. I mean, that was only last week. And all it takes is that seed of doubt to ruin your week, you know, because you just don't know. I mean, any phone call from the agency could be them telling us there's been a new wrinkle. As far as we know, they've lost their housing. We don't know where they are. Um, They didn't come for visitation this week. And we feel right at this moment like things are good, you know, but... It could change. It could change any time. So that's where it stands. It's been another couple of weeks since we recorded this, and there's been no sign of the parents in that time. They've continued to miss their visitation, and nobody seems to know where they are right now. Baby Violet is only three months old, and even Steve and Patrick are surprised by how quickly they fell in love with her and felt like they were her parents. One reason they didn't seek straight-up adoption in the first place was that they couldn't afford it. They told me it would have cost them forty to $50,000. Surrogacy was another option, also very costly. But money wasn't the only reason they went the foster-to-adopt route. We thought there are plenty of children in the world. We don't need to make a new one. If there's someone in a bad situation that we can help, then we'll be glad to do that. That's kind of our responsibility as gay parents, I think. And they knew going in that the goal of foster care is always to reunite the kid with the birth parents. They thought they would get a baby where reunification was unlikely, but they knew the risk. And even Patrick thought it would be okay at first. Before we got her, and I was talking to my sister who has two kids, and I was saying how, like, you know, the whole idea of foster care is reunification. And if we get a baby that we end up keeping, then amazing. And if we get a baby that we can take really good care of while her parents are getting their acts together and then they get her back, then we can really be on board with that too. Like, that'll be so great. And that's just not the case. The tragic irony is that this very attitude is what makes them such great parents. And reunification with the parents is a bizarre term in the case of Violet, who's never been with her first parents. It would at best be a unification with them, not a reunification. But where she's better off is hard to judge without knowing the details of the situation and the birth parent struggles. And for the sake of everyone involved, as I said, we won't go into those. What I do know is that Patrick and Steve are excellent parents, and Violet is the most delightful, smiley little girl. When you were little, you dreamed you were big, 
My biggest fear in doing this story was that others might be deterred from getting a foster to adopt baby. Given what Steve and Patrick are going through, I couldn't hold it against anyone. But my son's best friend was a foster to adopt baby, and this was a case where it all worked out. The adoption went through, and his mother, who's raising him alone, is one of the greatest moms I know. She's kind of a role model for me, and I know that her bond with her kid is no different from mine with my son. The thought that her little boy might have found himself in an orphanage or in some uncertain foster situation, or had been raised by a mother who was unable to care for him, which was true in his case, because his now mom might have been too scared to take in a foster-to-adopt baby, makes me just want to cry. So to everyone who enters this difficult territory, hats off. And of course, the birth parents' rights should be protected and taken very seriously, always. Let's just hope the system gets it right most of the time. Thanks for listening. We have some big news, which is that we can now listen to you. We have a brand new phone number where you can call us with your comments and your story ideas, and it's 844-NO-STRANGER, as in you'll be no stranger to us when you call us. That's 844-667-8726. If you're not in the U.S., you can still use the recording function at storycentral.org, right on the homepage. There's a button that says, Record Your Story. And of course, you can still email us, too. We have a new email address for pitches, which is strangersradio at gmail.com. But if talking is easier than writing, call 844-NO-STRANGER and leave a message or record it at storycentral.org. And you know, just because it says, Record Your Story, doesn't mean we expect you to record your entire story. It could just be an idea, a synopsis, something you came across, Or you can tell us why you love the show or hate the show or what we could be doing better. And if you do love it, please give us a good rating in iTunes. It's just one click. We're a founding member of Radiotopia. And so is Radio Diaries, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. They're having a Kickstarter this month. And at the very least, please check out their show. And if you love it, maybe kick in a few bucks. It's hard to imagine you won't love it. If you don't want to listen to me, listen to Ira Glass talk about them. He's in their Kickstarter video. Just search for Radio Diaries on Kickstarter.com. Here's a clip from their latest episode about Walter Backerman, who's one of the last seltzer delivery men in New York City. Seltzer man. I have pleasure in my route. I really, it's not just the money. I enjoy the route, I enjoy meeting people, I enjoy the camaraderie, I enjoy the socialism, and I like talking to people. We're also a part of KCW's Independent Producer Project, and KCW has a brand new, beautiful website. Our page is at kcw.com strangers. Big thanks to my production assistants, Louisa Beck and James Kim, to Julia Barton for editorial support, to Jesse Rothwell for helping me find some music, and to J.C. Swadek for mixing. Also thanks to Zane Brzezinski for letting us use some of his music in this episode. His website is bandcamp.com. Thanks to the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, who are the funders of Radiotopia. 
MailChimp also powers our newsletter, which you can sign up for at storycentral.org. Thanks to the Leon Lowenstein Foundation and the Lucius and Eva Eastman Fund for their support, and to the funders of KCRW's Independent Producer Project, the Annenberg Foundation, the Gold Hirsch Foundation, and the Roth Family Foundation. I'm Leah Tao. Until next time, happy June to all you dads, and don't be strangers. Radiotopia. From P.